Good morning, beloved. It's good to be together in God's house this morning. And it is a staggering privilege to open his word together. In this January, we are going to look at one chapter of Scripture, Romans chapter 12. And we're going to look at this chapter together over the weeks of January. We're going to seek transformation from a key imperative, a key summons in this passage that we'll look at this morning. And as we look at Romans 12, I want you to raise your expectations for the level of change that God wants to do in us. And I use us deliberately. Because the transformation that really matters and that has lasting change is not an individual resolution or a decision of the will that we might make individually, but the real transformation that's at stake in the New Testament is a transformation that we all participate in together. And it's a transformation, as we'll see, that gave me a double-stage exegetical euphoria even before I'm just warning you up front I'm going to try to hold this back because usually this comes in in one big crash but it's come in a double wave of exegetical euphoria it's a little deeper in the sermon but I'm just warning you now and it's changed my own expectation of how God wants to change us and specifically what he wants to change us into And so we're going to look this morning at the opening two sentences of Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans is Paul's most significant letter for several reasons. It reflects the mature pattern of his preaching. He has just come off of teaching five hours a day in the city of Ephesus for three years. So if you teach for 3,000 hours, your presentation gets tight. And he was teaching the riches of the gospel and its implications for individuals, for churches, and for society, and for all the world. And we get a a, a presentation of that ministry vision and preaching vision in the letter that we know as Romans. It shows his experienced response to common objections to the cross of Christ. It shows his very pastoral approach to secondary issues. It ends with a very moving portrait of a diverse worshiping church as the people of God. Romans is Paul's longest letter. And if you're ever wondering why is Romans the first of Paul's letters in the New Testament, that's why. The library convention of the day is to arrange documents by author and descending length. So Romans is the longest, Philemon is the shortest, and that's why it's first. But it's written after he's been in ministry for 25 years. I've been a pastor for 21 years. And I've preached over a thousand times. And I think I'm clearer on the gospel than I was when I started. I care more about the gospel than when I started. I understand the gospel better than when I started. And I feel the implications of the gospel more than when I started. So will you join me on this journey and just be open to what God wants to do. I hope we are different as a community in a few weeks than we are right now. Amen? Will you pray with me for that? Well, we want to look together in week one at the first two sentences of Romans 12. And in these two sentences, there are two great appeals, two big asks 
And these two great appeals, these two big asks will lead to a great result, one great result for all of us. So two asks and one great result. And this result, together really with these asks, will have massive implications, at least three of them, for our community. So that's where I'm headed. Two big asks, one great result, and at least three big implications for all of us. So let's look at the first sentence. The first sentence, why don't you say it with me? It should be on the wall. Say this with me. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's say that one more time. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's look at this first sentence, phrase by phrase. It starts with an appeal, an ask, and we should not pass over that too quickly because what we're being asked to do in this opening sentence is quite significant. It's not a small request. It's not like the kind of request that you get at the restaurant at the end of the meal when the screen comes up and says, do you want to give 10%, 15%, or 18% or more? And that's an ask, but it's not really an appeal, is it? No hostess ever looks you in the eye and just says, I want to appeal to you. Will you give 15, 18% on this meal? We're looking at something deeper, more central, something that will require a significant assent, a yes. I appeal to you, and I want you to notice, which you can't see in English, but it's clear in the original text, that the you here is plural. It's not singular. And all of the yous and yours in this passage, these two sentences are plural. And I want you to hear that because these two sentences are talking to all of us. Not to us individually, because we cannot answer the appeal individually. We have to answer it together. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and note that familial language. This is a peculiar quality of Christians. We get familiar with it. We use it so much. And remember that brothers, is, it's inclusive language. It, it means brothers and sisters. It's the generic plural, but it's familial language. Now, I don't know if you noticed coming in, but you are not biologically related to most of the people in this room. Some of you are, and some of you are sitting in close, uh, biologically related, familial groups. I'm not going to ask you to stand, but you know who you are. But do you know that the New Testament actually thinks that we have a blood relationship? That everyone in this room actually is related. Not just by a common ancestry, because we share the human race, but we are biologically related, theologically related because our lives together have been purchased by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that creates a familial bond of affection that's deeper than your family relationship. So don't take that little word brothers for granted. 
When you feel this great love for someone sitting next to you at Kenwood that is a deeper love than you might feel toward a biological relative, you might think, oh, this is strange. There's something wrong with me. There isn't. You're just feeling the implications of the gospel. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, What a phrase. This ask comes because the appeal is based on receiving God's grace. So critical. It means that we have a gratitude-dependent discipleship. God's mercy, which he describes here as plural because of the abundance of it. The abundance of God's mercy the depth of God's mercy, the range of God's mercy. And often in the Old Testament, the the first half or first three quarters of the Bible, God's attribute of merciful is in the plural because it's just so vast. When God reveals himself to Moses with compassion and mercy, he identifies himself with this quality. For Paul, the appeal that he's about to make, he hasn't made the big ask. If you've missed it, some of you are thinking right now, I've already missed it. You haven't missed it. This is the setup. I appeal, therefore, to you brothers, by the mercies of God, I'm not gonna ask anything of you without first reminding you of all that you've received. We have received, beloved, the staggering, humbling mercy of God. The last sentence of Romans 11, right before these verses, is an explosion of praise for the mercy of God. Romans eleven thirty two. God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And Paul bursts into praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's a person who knows they are a recipient of grace. And and that's so exciting because that means that together we're all sinners. Amen? It means that we're all a wreck, that we're dangerous people, and that we need grace. And that when grace washes over us, grace is not without effect. Grace doesn't just remove my sin, grace remakes me, as we'll see. So, are you ready for the first ask? It's big, it's big. The first ask in verse one is, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. To present your body, to take your physical person and stand it up, set it up before God in the presence of others and say, here I am, Lord. And you stand before God and within the community and you present yourself as a living sacrifice. This means that that we are called to an embodied discipleship. 
Christianity is not just a believing a set of things. Christianity is saying, I've been made in the image of God. God has created me as a physical person. He has redeemed my physical person. He has forgiven me of my sins. And my whole body, my physical apparatus, is I'm just going to set it forward in God's presence and say, here it is. Use it for your glory. That means what I say, what I do with my hands, what I do with my feet, what I do with my lower back. Do you know that you can glorify God with your lower back? Somebody say amen. You can glorify God with your lower back and you squat down and lift up a heavy load that a brother or sister cannot carry and you pick it up and you say, I'll carry that. You can glorify God and we are called to glorify God with our entire physical person. The Bible's view of person is body and soul and that means I offer myself in all that I am for God's use. What I do, how I work, how I study, how I engage in relationship with others. Present your body as a living sacrifice. Now this is kind of scary imagery, isn't it? We use the word, uh, let me make a sacrifice for you. And that's moderately scary, right? That's moderately scary because that's scary just to self. And you, when you say, let me sacrifice for you, then you're saying to yourself, I will do without. I will abstain from a second portion of the freshly boiled cranberries so that you can enjoy them. And I will sacrifice my joy and delight in the boiled fresh cranberries. Some of you know what I'm talking about. There are cranberry lovers in here. I'm one of them. Especially the fresh ones. So tart. Sacrifice is to do without, and that's moderately scary. It's moderately scary to, to the self who seeks its own. But this language is way more scary. This isn't let me do without language. This is language used of the offering. This is language that's used of the priestly task of bearing the burdens of others, even those not your own. Of, this is the priestly task of mediating the presence of God to other people through intercession and prayer and service and sacrifice. This is not just not getting what I want. This is taking my whole person and moving it forward and say, God, I am here for your cause in the lives of others and I'm willing to sacrifice and serve and carry burdens I'm willing to pray with tears over a situation in a family because I am united with them in the body of Christ. To be a living sacrifice, Charles Spurgeon said we are called to be living sacrifices, not living specimens. 
you know, in, in New Year's. And I like to work out, and, and uh, I, there are great interactions that happen in the gym and opportunities to share Christ, and, and I love all of that. And uh, I love to get to know the people who check others in. And, and they always say, just in the last couple of days, you know, it's been pretty crowded at the gym. And, and, and we have this understanding, like, yeah, we know what's going on here. This is, this is all the people who didn't just eat cranberries. And, and everybody's coming in, and we kind of laugh. And, and I love to ask, I say, how long will this last? Like, how long will it be hard to get in there? And they're like, yeah, four to six weeks. It'll just start, <laughs> it'll just start tapering back off into the normal range. But we are not called to be living specimens in this verse. We're called to be living sacrifices. That means that Paul is inviting us to be dedicated to God in our whole person. That means that no part of you, no part of me doesn't belong to God. That means all of it. In the last phrase of this, finishing this thought, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Holy to God. What does that mean? Holy to God means to belong to God. It means to be set apart and then dedicated for God's use. And there have been some interesting examples of this showing possession and ownership. One fascinating way that you see this in the ancient world is in jar handles. In jar handles, they are stamped with the owner and the owner's name. And it will say on the jar handle of a product, it might just say Lamelech, belonging to the king. Meaning that this jar and whatever's in the jar, it's for the king. The king owns it and he can use it how he wants to. And this is a common feature of many types of material possessions. But in the Old Testament, there is one person who has this kind of stamp on his body. And it's the high priest. And the high priest has a, has a golden diadem on his forehead, and it doesn't say Lamelech for the king, it just says, holy to the Lord. And this man is marked as being dedicated for God's use in the world. And God's use in the world for the sake of other people. And what Paul is doing here, beloved, is quite extraordinary, is he is taking this language to be dedicated for God's use in the world and applying it to all of us. It means that we don't exist for ourselves. We're called to be living sacrifices, holy to the Lord, pleasing to God, that we in our full physical person are for God's use in the world. We are to reflect God's glory in every aspect of our lives. This will involve self-denial and sometimes suffering. It means living like a kingdom of priests and the main task of the priest is to bring God to people and people to God. We are called to an embodied discipleship with our whole physical person and to present in light of the mercy that we have received in Jesus Christ, we offer nothing less than all of ourselves. 
Isn't that great? I mean, it's threatening, let's be honest. But actually, it's wonderful. It's wonderful because God says, I would actually like to use every part of you. I'd like to use your creativity, your thoughts, your business abilities, your sexuality, your love for nature, your service, everything about you. You just dedicate it to me and I want to use all of it. Isn't that actually a loving ask? God gives everything for us and delights for us to offer everything back to him. And he interprets this whole act with the last phrase of verse one. The ESV says, which is your spiritual worship. If you look at other translations or even some editions of the Bible, you'll see a footnote here because translators struggle to know how to render this phrase. Some translations say, which is your logical worship. Others say, which is your spiritual worship. The Greek expression that's used here, it reads, which is your logical worship. That's a very literal translation. But this expression is an important one. This word is used to describe something functioning in its proper way. If someone gave you a hockey stick for Christmas and January you're gonna work on your game and you were getting ready to gather with your hockey friends and one of your hockey friends decided to use his hockey stick as the boom for an ice boat. And you'd say, hey man, like that's not why I got you the hockey stick. That's not what the hockey stick is for. That's not the right use of the hockey stick. But when you use something as it's truly designed, then that's how you use this expression. And so what is actually being said here is not your spiritual worship as to a non-spiritual worship or your logical worship as opposed to an irrational worship. What Paul is really saying is this is the worship, this is the action that makes sense of your humanity. That's what he's saying. If you really wanna be a human being, then receive the mercy of God to you in Jesus Christ and offer your life back to him in dedication and service to him and others. And that's what it means to be a human being. That's what he's saying. Wow. So I want to ask you, are you willing? <laughs> are you willing in light of the mercy that we all receive in Christ to say, God, I want to offer my whole body thought, mind, hands, feet, every part of me, I just want to step forward and say no part of me, my work, my studies, my relationship, no part of me is out of bounds. It's just for you and use my life. That's the first act. Now, you can say yes this morning or you can say, whoa, that's, uh, that's a little much for New Year's Day. Some of you are still getting over what happened last night. Um, whatever that was for you. Uh, but I'm just saying, some of you are just like, too much. And you could say, uh, let me think about that. And that's actually okay. I'd rather have you say, let me think about it. But I will ask, not from Romans 12 this morning, but just from me, I'll ask you, will you keep coming in January? 
and keep exposing yourself to, to God's word. It's okay if you're like, whoa, that's too much for New Year's Day. But I'm thinking about it. That's okay. And you know what? It's actually okay if you say, I understand that clearly and there's no way I'm doing that. And if you're saying that right now, that's okay too. And I'll still ask you to just keep coming in January. And then I'll celebrate with you when you look me in the eye and say, I'm ready to do that now. Okay, that's the first ask. Your whole body, everything about you, dedicate it to God. Let's go to the second sentence. We haven't even gotten to the double stage exegetical euphoria yet. It's coming. It's coming soon. Nudge your neighbor. Tell him it's coming. Okay. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Let's say this whole sentence together. Will you say it with me? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's say it one more time. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's look at this phrase by phrase. The second appeal, the second ask has, has two parts really. It's a don't do this, but do this. It's really one, two sides of one coin. Do not be conformed, do not, or maybe better translated is no longer be conformed because the imperative is present tense. This is happening. Do you, do you know that this is happening to all of us? Do you know that there are forces around us that are shaping our attitudes and perceptions and priorities. Some of them are obvious, like you walk through the mall and you think, wow, I think I want a cinnamon bun after all. Okay, that happens to you. You know, you, you weren't thinking of that at all when you walked in there. Um, I mean, there's, there's the obvious types of things like the volume of, of marketing that we absorb that influences our priorities, but there are other things that, that are, are more subtle, that our, our cultural forces that, that dictate for us uh, what it means to be successful. There are cultural forces that, that suggest to us what it means to be attractive. There are, there are cultural patterns around us that, that suggest to us ways of acting that influence us all. Do we all feel this at some level? Does anyone disagree with this? Okay, then I'm going to save a little time on the sermon. <laughs> We're all affected by it to varying degrees. But the startling element here in verse 2 is Paul says, I don't want you to keep doing that. I don't want you to be shaped into the priorities and attitudes of fallen human culture. I don't want you to accept the division or the denigration of life. The ESV translates this as this world. The text says to this age. And that's an interesting di difference. And it's the perfect setup for the two-stage exegetical euphoria. It's coming. 
And I want you to wonder with me, how in the world can I not be overly influenced by the world around me? I mean, I'm in it. I mean, you could throw your phone into the Ohio River. You could, um, you could try to separate yourself from all media influence. You could try to isolate yourself in the basement of your house and have no social interactions with other people and you'd still be affected by this world because we're in it and the world, this age, is in us. So you, you can't get away from it. So, so I want you to really wonder with me, how am I supposed to no longer be conformed to this world? And the answer is just so great. The answer is the second appeal. The answer is the second appeal, and the second appeal has the two-stage exegetical euphoria in it. Are you ready? So good, so good. The second appeal says, stop being or no longer be conformed, molded, shaped into the priorities and pleasures of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed, be changed. And when you and I hear this, be transformed, we, we sense and we hear in that that it's passive, and that's good news. That's really good news, because this imperative is not change yourself. Hallelujah. That would be the most depressing New Year's sermon of all time. Because we can't do that. I can't do that. Your spouse can't do that. Your boyfriend or girlfriend can have a moderate effect on you. You can present your best self for a few selective hours a week, but there's no real power for lasting change, and there's no power in us for transformation, and that's why it's so thrilling that the, that the appeal is be transformed. And so you will ask yourself, well, who is doing it? Who will change me? Exegetical euphoria part one, here it is. The word that's used here, translated as be transformed, is the Greek word to metamorphize. And some of you are thinking of the Franz Kafka novel. Some of you are going, who is Franz Kafka? That's okay. Some of you are thinking about butterflies. That's okay. One of the disciplines of studying God's word carefully is to look when a word is used to see where else it is used. To ask, what is in view here? When I was learning modern Greek to try to dazzle my future wife, I was in this class and one of the students in the class, we were talking about what we did vocationally, his name, was, his name was Brian, and, and we went around the room, what do you do, what do you do? And Brian said, I'm Brian, and I write the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. And I mean, I was just in awe of this guy. I was like, wow, you write the dictionary? Man. And I said, you've got a lot of power, Brian. I mean, he was kind of a nerdy guy with glasses, and I was, he was really thin. And I was like, Brian, like you Tell us 
what the words mean. That's awesome. And he said, oh, I don't do that. I don't do that. I said, what do you do? He said, oh, I just document the usage. That's how we know what words mean, actually, is how they're used. So one of the disciplines of reading God's word carefully and which exploded me into this exegetical euphoria was to ask the question, how is this word used in the Bible? What is Paul really thinking? And this word is only used in one passage in the Gospels. It's used of the passage when Jesus takes Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain and Jesus was transfigured. He was metamorphosized before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes were white as light and they saw him as he really was. Veiled in flesh, the incarnate deity. Jesus clothed himself in humanity. And for this brief moment, he took them to the mountain and he showed them his glory. That's what I'm really like. And they fell down in worship. And when I read that, I thought, oh my. Because I know that Paul knows the gospel traditions. And I begin to ask myself, is it possible that Paul is not thinking of transformation in some generic sense of just change for the sake of change or be transformed like he was anticipating modern transformers or something? Or was he really thinking of the specific be transformed into the glorious likeness of Jesus Christ? Is this language in Romans 12 too not just general change, but could this possibly mean that in light of the mercies of God, we present our whole body to God in active service and we are no longer pressed and molded into the pattern of this world, but we are invited to be changed into the glorious likeness of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you to marinate on that for the next month. And I, I was unsure, could he possibly be thinking that? Does Paul use this language in any other place? The good news is he does. He uses it in one other passage. In 2 Corinthians 3, he says that we all with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed. We are being metamorphosized into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So the good news of this new year from Romans 12 is to be transformed into Christ-likeness. It's not about a change of diet or getting up earlier or trying to be more truthful in your speech or decreasing your internet time. or uh, Those things are not all bad, but this is about something much, much greater. It's invitation to present your whole self to God. 
And then watch what happens. What happens is you start no longer being shaped into the pattern of this world, of this age, but you start becoming more and more like Christ. You start becoming more and more like Christ in your speech. You become more and more like Christ in your attitude, in your service, in your bearing the burdens of others, your willingness to sacrifice. Exegetical euphoria part one is that transformation is transformation into Christ-likeness. And exegetical euphoria part two is nearby and it's the renewal of your mind. And, and, and this phrase, to renew your mind, it's easy for us to, to take that out of context and um, process that in almost like a psychological model or a self-help matrix. You know, there is a large section at most bookstores for self-help. Have you noticed that? That's a big section. Have you noticed that there is no section called help others? I noticed that. Actually, it was pointed out to me. But, but this is not self-help. This is offering yourself to God and letting him just remake you and remake you into who you are created to be. And the world will offer you all kinds of promises, but will not ultimately be able to deliver on them. But when you present yourself to God in Christ, you actually become more of yourself. And we become more of ourselves together. And the renewal, this language of renewal, it's a big word. It's a big word that means nothing less than the new creation has begun. Like Don said, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is a large aspect of the Old Testament's hope for the future. We are hopeful people that God will bring a new creation. And beloved, that new creation has started. It started with the resurrection of Jesus. And for everyone who believes in him, you receive his mercy, you present yourself to him in active service and he begins to remake you and change you and all of a sudden you're gonna find if you take the first appeal seriously, you're gonna find new desires springing up in you. And you'll say, is, is that me? And then you'll begin to recognize, yeah, that is me. You, you'll find yourself serving other people, living sacrificially, bearing the burdens of others, caring about hurts that are not even your own. And you will start finding yourself living and thinking and feeling and spending in a way that makes Jesus visible to the world. And you'll say, what in the world's happened to me? And it'll be great and glorious. Okay, let's finish quickly. Two big asks. Present your body, your whole person. Second big ask is stop being shaped into this world, but be transformed into Christ's likeness. 
And the ask really is, is let that happen. Seek that. And the result of this in Romans 12, 2, is what happens to all of us together. That as a result, we become a people who can discern and recognize the will of God. Sometimes we use the phrase the will of God to mean individual daily decisions. What's God's will for me of which of these two cars should I purchase? That's not what's at stake here. Sometimes we think of the will of God as something a little more high stakes, like God's will for the person I should marry. That's a big decision and you want to seek God's will. But this language here is the will of God is just the broad statement for God's will for human life in every area. And what's so remarkable is that when we are transformed into Christ's likeness, we begin to be a people who can see God's will, recognize it as God's will, and we call it good, we call it perfect, we call it desirable, and we spur one another on to actually do it. And this is the great reversal of Romans chapter 1. At the end of Romans 1, the lostness of humanity for not worshiping God, we spin out of control. We do all kinds of crazy things, crazier and crazier. And in the end of Romans 1, we're found in a situation where we can't even see and recognize God's will. We see evil and call it good. (laughs) We see good and call it evil. We're just so disordered and what happens in Romans 12 and what happens in the light of the mercy we receive in Christ is we get remade we get remade and so we see God's will and we recognize it and we love it and we seek to do it together okay three big implications and I'm finished Three massive implications for us. Each of them have start with the word S. You may want to write these down. The first is to seek transformation into Christ's likeness in 2023. Many of us make resolutions at this time of year. We sometimes we choose a word that we want to capture for this year. And I submit before you that a great direction for you to point your soul for this year is in the direction to seek transformation into Christ-likeness. How do you do that? Maybe you start reading God's word on a regular basis as an individual or as a family. Maybe you get a fresh resolve to a daily devotional prayer. If all of us together spent five minutes in devotional prayer, just five minutes as the starting point of our day, it would change us. Maybe this year, a seeking transformation is, is taking the step to initiate or follow through on a discipleship relationship. A seeking transformation means resisting conformity to this age, to this world, in our personal life, in our family life, and in our church life. We've got to resist it. Number two is to strengthen our shared identity in Christ. 
strengthen our shared identity. Five times in these two sentences, we have you plural. You, brothers, your bodies, your worship, and all of us together approving and recognizing God's will. Change is bigger than me, and real transformation happens within the life of the body of Christ. This community is a change mechanism in God's hands. To be really transformed is not just an act of the will. It's being in community and letting that transformation happen through and in each other. And number three is to support our missional mindset as a church. It's to support who we are as a group together. And who we are together, like Paul says in Romans 1.5, we have received grace and apostleship. Grace and mission to bring about the obedience of faith among all nations. To support the mission doesn't just mean financial giving. It means to support the mission is to be on the mission to recognize that we as a body of Christians are to live and conduct ourselves in this world in a way that seems strange. And yet wonderfully attractive. To live and conduct ourselves as a group of people whom others recognize as grace-filled. Wouldn't that be wonderful? For people to say about us, what a strange group of people. They don't retaliate. They don't get angry. Everybody around me gets angry so easily. And this weird group of people that meet together at 8341 Kenwood Road are so grace-filled. I don't even know how to make sense of that. I'd love to hear that. A group of people who willingly and openly identify themselves as living sacrifices, serving others, and belonging to God. As a people who have compassion on those who do not yet recognize the will of God who are humble enough to declare that the only reason that they do see the will of God is because they themselves have been forgiven of their own sin and they have been renewed by the mercy of God. Their minds have been renewed by God's mercy so they can strive to do God's will and they offer grace and mercy and forgiveness because they have received that. You don't need the gospel to get angry and judge other people. You can do that on your own. But if you have received grace and mercy and you get changed into Christ's likeness, then people see us as a peculiar people existing for others in the sake, for God's sake in the world. And when they see us as a gathered community, and we'll follow this further in January because this is where Romans goes, they will see us as a people that are a signpost of the future. They will see us as a people. Isn't it remarkable that there are people who speak 21 native languages in this church? There are people with the absolute extremes of education or lack of education. 
Some of you have been entrusted with great wealth. And some of you are, are wondering how you will pay the bills next month. There is so much range in this sanctuary of life station and age. There are at least four generations of people and yet here we all are. We are all here as a humble, sacrificial, missional, grace-filled, prayer-dependent people. We're a people willing to listen, slow to judge, eager to sacrifice, willing to suffer, a people who, are, who will love their enemies and pray for those who might persecute or oppose them, a people who will make room for others and welcome the stranger, a people who love we so much more than me, a people who glory in Christ and are eager to share him no matter what the cost. That's what we're invited into in Romans 12, 1 and 2. To be a people who receive mercy and say, God, here I am. A people who say, yeah, I don't want to be shaped into this world anymore. I want to step into transformation into Christ's likeness in light of his resurrection and say, God, will you remake me into your image so that we together can display who you are in the world? Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you say so much in two sentences. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear, embrace, and understand it. I pray, Lord, that you would not let your word fall on hardened soil or rocky path. Don't let the cares of this world choke it out, but let your word find fertile soil in our hearts and minds. And Lord, would you enable us in this new year to step forward and just give you all of ourselves. Thank you for the mercy that you extend to us in Jesus Christ and your active, powerful willingness to remake us into your image so that we might glorify you in the world. Transform us, Lord, together, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.